Good morning. Let's go to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. We have, uh, we're working our way, and this is week five of a sermon series uh, that's lined up with our reading for community groups. So if you don't have your copy of Gentle and Lowly, there it is in the back. This week would be chapters 10 through 12, and uh, we're going to focus on a topic similar to what we've, we've heard in the Confession of uh, Sin time with the devotional there. We're going to talk about compassion today. We're going to talk about Jesus' compassion from Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. All right, so several uh, years ago, I was pastoring a church in South Carolina, and it was... Th- you know, I mean, it, it was pastoring a church, so not, not everybody likes you, you know, like, what can I say? There are these moments where the people just don't agree with you about much at all. And uh, so there's, I had a, a member of the church who um, served so faithfully, so uh, 100% dedicated to the church, 100% dedicated to the gospel, 100% dedicated to evangelism, um, and... 99% in disagreement with my way of doing those same things. So it just wasn't like an awesome relationship. Just it was tenuous. You know what I mean? Just yeah, kind of, um, or every time I just knew I had to like prepare my heart for the, for the time that we would spend together. And so a couple of years into our, our ministry there, his, this gentleman's father passed away. His father was a member of a Pentecostal holiness church. Um, on the other other side of town, it was an elderly gentleman passed away, you know, naturally of natural causes of his age. Um, but it was a, a relatively small town, and so and because of this this person's stature in the ministry of, of the church, like I, it was one hundred percent necessary for me to be more engaged and involved in the things of the of the funeral um, than than would have normally necessarily been the case for a person I didn't know, right? Um, so there was a, a visitation. Um, part, you know, how in our culture, this is the way funerals take place. There was a a visitation time, uh, like on a Tuesday or Thursday night, somewhere uh, and another at the funeral home that had a little chapel inside of it. And so in part because of, you know, the the tenuous nature of the relationship and to kind of break the ice a little bit, and in part because I, I, generally speaking, was intentional in trying to, like, expose my two young boys at the time to ministry, um, I often took them with me, at least one of them with me, even though they were four, five, six years of age, I would take one with me uh, to be a part so they could see from a time when it was memorable what it was like to be a pastor. And uh, so with, during the visitation, I thought this would be a really good opportunity for me to take one of my, one of my sons to, to, to a funeral visitation. And it would kind of help break the ice a little bit with, with, with uh, this person that had a tenuous relationship with so we're so we're we walk into the to the funeral home and we're and we're kind of in line and uh so i bend over and i grab my my son you know not i grab my like i you know grab my son i was like okay buddy so here's what's here's what we're gonna wait in this line for a little bit and um you see you see uh the 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 gentleman and his wife yeah you see okay because you you see him all the time yeah you okay so his his dad has passed away now look look behind his dad um, look behind. Look behind this gentleman. So, and behind him was the open coffin. Okay, so it's visitation, not just 
the family, but an open coffin for people to, to pray, pay their respects and, and, and see him pass away. So behind, which I had not prepared myself for. I was not ready for that. So when I, so I grabbed, you know, grabbed my son. I was like, so buddy, here's what's going on. I said, now I'm going to stop and talk to this couple for two or three minutes. I want you to stand still. Do not touch the coffin. Do you understand? Yes, sir. I understand. Do not touch the coffin. Got it. Okay. What are we going to do when we get there? You're going to talk, and I'm going to stand there, and I'm not going to touch the coffin. Great. So we, we go in line, and we get, we get there, and I start talking to, I will call him Bob and Ann, and, I, and so you're talking to Bob about his, his dad and his legacy and his, and his faith, and, and then to Ann about, you know, the, her, how they've been married forever, you know, and so she'd known him forever, and we we're talking, and we're, we're talking, it was, you know, godly man, it was a good thing, and, and I look down, and my son is not there. He is not there. And because it had been you know a little bit longer than you know than certainly this introvert had been ready for, and so I looked and he's not there, and I look up and I look behind Bob and Ann where the open coffin is, and there is my son. He is not touching the coffin; he is lifting the hand of the grandfather. Right? So, really, I said. So I, you know, it's a, it just just ever so slightly, he obeyed me one hundred percent. Right, but it never occurred to me, right, that he would do that, right? So, and he would not even remember that he did it. But he did it. I assure you, I, I did it. So, you know, it, it just—it was an amazing experience because this, this the tenuous relationship with this person. Now, my son has like brought on this weird, like, was that a shameful moment? Was it an unclean moment? Like, what? What was that? Like, it was just not great. It just, it could, it just wasn't great. So pretty dramatic uh, thing to take place, but more dramatic things have, have taken place at a funeral. And our, our text today is a funeral. Um, it, and something very, very dramatic happens, and it reveals a lot to us about Jesus, um, just as it did to those who are present at this moment. Um, and it's just going to show there are a lot of things we're going to learn. You can see about a lot of things about the character of God, uh, about Jesus. But what you were definitely going to see is Jesus' compassion. Is Jesus' compassion. That's an English word with two Latin words that combine together, calm and, and passion. That's with suffering. Compa- to, com- to have compassion means to suffer with someone. Um, and we're gonna, so we're going to see how Jesus suffers with people. And we're going to see, um, we're going to see, therefore, what, it, so that's just a personal thing for you. Like, I want you to understand that. And then I want you to understand how that manifests itself in our ministry to the world. Okay? Because that's what happened to Jesus. 17. It's an interesting text. Afterward, he was on his way to a town called Nain. His disciples and a large crowd were traveling with him. Just as he neared the gate of the town, a dead man was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. A large crowd from the city was also with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, Don't weep. Then he came up and touched the open coffin, and the pallbearers stopped, and he said, Young man, 
I tell you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Then fear came over everyone, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout Judea and all the vicinity. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So I just want to walk through this story with you, and we're going to kind of pause um, along the way, and we'll get little insights, and we're we're going to learn some things about Jesus, but in particular, his compassion. Look closely at verse 7. Afterward, he was on his way to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd were traveling with him. So we're jumping right into a, a part of Luke, kind of right smack dab in the middle of this section, where Luke is beginning to... And it has already started, like, elaborating on Jesus' ministry. He's showing this event, this conversation, this ministry. That, And as he's doing nations over a series of events, over a series of ministry opportunities, um, it, it came to be known exactly who Jesus was and what he was about. Um, and Luke is, is at pains at this point in his gospel. He's, he's demonstrating that no one really had, at this stage, no one had a clear understanding of who Jesus is and what he, he was about. And so he's, he's telling story after story and illustration to make that clear to you and to show how it unfolded in real time throughout Jesus' ministry. So if you, if you look at Luke as a whole, um, you've got this this um, segment of, of, of teaching in Luke chapter 6. And the, uh, so, so there's some teaching that's taking place to reveal something about the nature of Jesus. But then in Luke chapter 7, you have these uh, stories and these ministry moments where Jesus is doing some cool stuff. It's just, just really, he's revealing who he is by his ministry, by his demeanor, by the way he reacts to people and talks to people and then deals with people. And, and he starts in chapter 7 with Jesus walking through his adopted hometown of Capernaum, okay? And in Capernaum, Jesus is confronted with a group of local Jewish leaders and local Jewish, local, not having already local Jewish elders, and they come to Jesus asking him, having already heard something about the nature of Jesus' ministry, they ask him to heal an ill servant, but not just any old servant, a servant of a Roman centurion. And this Roman centurion, for whatever reason, was considered a friend of the Jews because he had even helped them. He'd gone so far as to help them get a synagogue built in their town, which if you think about it, is really remarkable because the centurion is really pledged to Caesar who thinks he is God. Jewish people who worship the one true God get a synagogue built. So this is a pretty profound relationship between this Roman centurion and these Jewish elders. And so these Jewish elders, they, they think that because of the nature of the way that this Roman centurion has helped them, he, as a person, is worthy of Jesus' ministry to heal this servant. He's kind to God's people, Jesus. You, as a prophet, you come and heal this person's servant because of the nature of this person. He's worthy of it. And so Jesus makes his way toward the soldier. And before he gets there, the soldier actually comes out and meets Jesus. And if you look back in your Bible, look at verse 7. This is what he says to Jesus. Jesus hasn't gotten anything out of his mouth yet. 
The centurion says to Jesus, Say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And if I say to my servant, do this, he does it. And so the centurion is saying to Jesus, in the same way that I understand the relationship of authority that I have over a soldier or over a servant, I say it and it's done. I recognize in you, I believe in you that you have the authority over life and death. You have the authority uh, to, to speak and make something be, not just when it comes to like other people, and their ba- but over someone taking a breath or their heart beating. I believe you have that. So uh, Jesus is so amazed at this soldier's faith that's expressed in verses 7 and 8 that when the centurion gets back, Jesus has healed him without even having... It's just there, right? He's just there. Jesus heard this and was amazed. And I've never seen faith like this. And and when the centurion goes back there, the, the servant has been healed. There's no mention of Jesus even saying anything. He's just, he's just healed. So right out of the gate, if you're Luke, you're, you're illustrating that right out of the gate, there's something very unusual about Jesus to the Jewish eye because his ministry is not limited to Jews. Right out of the gate, it's not limited to Jews. It's expanding out to the Gentiles, even those who work for the state that is generally despising the Jews, Jesus heals him. He heals his servant and holds him up as a model for faith. Okay? So then, in the Gospel of Luke, there's this transition. And it transitions us to the town of Nain. You can see that verse 11 on his way to a town called Nain. Nain was a small backwater town like 20 miles away from Capernaum. And it's just a great example of of how so much of Jesus' ministry just took place in the boonies. Just took place out in the boonies where the, where the nobodies live, generally, generally speaking. So if, if, if you read the four Gospels, it's just a nice little anecdote here. Like if you, if you read the four Gospels, um, the bulk of Genesis' ministry was to such people. Like just, they, weren't, they weren't people that, would have, that you would have holed up and said, like celebrity, highfalutin, uh, first class all the way. That's just not where Jesus spent his time. He was out with the common people. Um, so that's, that, and the name was like that. So you, and you, and you would expect that Jesus' disciples would be coming along, but there's also what in verse 11? His disciples and a large crowd, right? So, so Jesus' ministry out in these areas is having such an impact that even as he's done this in Capernaum and he's with, with the servant and he's moving out. Now he's 20 miles away. He's a large crowd, not just the people who are dedicated to following him, but now you've got a large crowd who have seen and ex- as they go. So Jesus is having a huge impact from the very beginning in his ministry. And look what happens in Nain. Look at verse 12. Jesus, just as he neared the gate of the town, a dead man was being carried out. Pay attention to the detail. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. A large crowd from the town was also with her. Now, so there's some very interesting cultural things taking place here that when we understand them, they shed some light 
on what's getting ready to take place here. So, so the way I like to do this is I like, I like to compare and contrast the, the, what's taking place in the, in the there's a funeral, right? So if someone passes away at their home nowadays, the, you know, the government is involved, the, the coroner's office, maybe the paramedics, maybe the hospital, the funeral home gets engaged, and then you've got family, you've got friends, you have church, you've got to like, how do I put this on Facebook? Like it's just, there's this whole thing that you just have to go through. Um, and it's, there are some variations about that. Uh, the way my mother died was very, you know, subdued, and um, and there wasn't a lot of drama. It had been six years of an illness, you know, of, of decline. Um, others, it's more, you know, it's more sudden, and there's a lot of drama, and it's very difficult. Um, so, it, but, but in some capacity, all these elements are in some way involved. And eventually, there may be a visitation service, like we'll have later today, or maybe a worship service. Maybe you'll go to graveside and have a service there if their body's not cremated. Those are the things that are taking place in our culture, which is nothing like what would have taken place in Jesus' day. It's completely different. In Jesus' day, when you got remove every institution that I just mentioned, there's no, no hospital there's no government, there's no funeral home, there's none of that. All you have is family and community, family and community to take care of everything. So in most cases, when someone passes away, the family wouldn't wait 24 hours to execute the funeral, to, to bury him or her. Um, so you, um, and the funeral wouldn't, therefore wouldn't be planned Right? You wouldn't have, have time to make an announcement and say, okay, it's going to be in, you know, in three or four days at this church. Like, you just didn't have to do any of that. Um, there wasn't a specific time and a specific place when a funeral would take place. I mean, you've got to, the, it's on the burden of the family or friends of the family in this case to wash, anoint, wrap, mourn, uh, and then bury the body as quickly as possible to avoid all the troubles that come with decomposition. So all this had to take place really quickly. And then when all that had taken place, the family would begin carrying the body out on a stretcher or, an, or what you and I would call an open coffin, but don't think of a box with an open lid. Just think of a, of a plank, okay, with uh, just probably made of wood. Um, be, and this is because Jewish custom did not allow for closed coffins. It's always open casket if you were Jewish. And so they, they would begin carrying the body out of town, and so they would proceed. They would, um, as they would proceed through the town. There's no, there's no announcements gone out. No, no, uh, no invitation for a for a service that is. Hey guys, we uh, Bob's died, and and uh, we'll say Levi has died because that's a Jewish name, and Bob is not. We'll say Levi has died, and he, um, and so we think we're going to get everything done by three o'clock on sun, uh, on a Monday, and uh, so at three o'clock uh, you should go ahead and block that time off. That's not the way it worked. So when the family did their job and began walking through the town carrying the open casket with pallbearers, they would um, they would proceed through the town. People would just stop what they were doing. And they would get in line and join the funeral procession. This is, you see this a little bit like in our culture. It's kind of like when you've been driving down the highway and a funeral procession is going uh, on their way to the, to the grave and their lights are on and there are cops that are leading the way. What do some people do in some cultures? You pull over, right, out of a sign of, sign of respect. So that's a little bit of a care over that. But in the, if we were doing the same thing, we would turn around and get in line and go all the way to the grave. 
That's what's taking place in Jesus' time. So um, they, would, they would just join in line. And in this particular case in Luke 7, it's a widow's, so her husband is dead, and it's her own, so she can't make any more children, and it's her only son who will now not be able to marry and will not be able to pass down the family line on his side either. So it's a very tragic funeral. This is a tragic situation. The family line won't continue, and the widow is now going to be left to be dependent on public charity for support unless she has some relatives who can care for her means. So it's not just a funeral. It's a really heavy funeral. Since we moved back here eight years ago, nine years ago, I've preached two funerals. One was for a toddler who suffocated on a chicken nugget in the mall in Franklin. The other was for a 19-year-old who ended her life at depression. Those were heavy funerals. That's what this is. This is a heavy funeral. There are celebratory funerals. There are celebratory funerals. This is not one of them. So the scenario is this. You have this bereaved widow and now no longer a mother. And she is walking out in front of the body, being carried on a wooden plank by friends and neighbors of the family. And as they go, you have the community joining in behind them, a great crowd. And they are walking, and as they walk toward, and then out the gate, they're going out, because you don't bury people in the city limits, inside the gate of the city. You bury them out in the, outside of town. They're walking out through the gate on their way to a burial site. Look what happens in verse 13. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, Don't weep. And then he came up and he touched the open coffin and the pallbearers stopped. So because the woman, this is what I mean culturally, I think through this process, because the woman is out in front of the procession. Jesus sees her first. And it would have been really clear that she was the mother of this young man because she's the one out in front. And it would have been clear that she was the widow and now childless because there's no man walking next to her, no, no other son, no, no brother, uh, no, uh, no, and no husband. And it's in this moment, look what Jesus does. Jesus breaches cultural and theological protocol. Jesus breaks cultural tradition and theological tradition in this moment. He interrupts and stops the funeral, which was a blatant disregard for Jewish law and custom. Just imagine what it would have looked like in our own culture in the middle of a funeral service if someone just stopped everything that was planned for the visitation or stopped everything that was planned for the worship service, or stopped everything at the internment. Those are holy and reverent and and moments that carry a ton of tradition and weight, and to break those protocols is not just socially awkward, it, it comes across disrespectful when we do those things. And no one would, you wouldn't think anybody would touch it because of how special and sacred those are, but Jesus stops the procession to the burial. He, and it's a, and it, 
he sets aside, he sets aside culture and theological expectation in that moment. And then he touches the coffin. I told my son, do not, 2,000 years later in a Western culture, do not touch the open coffin. And he didn't. Jesus walked over and touched the coffin, which was expressly prohibited by Jewish law. You know, contracted some... If a person had gone and touched the, the, the coffin, they would have contact, you know, contracted some sort of um, Jewish uncleanliness, right? Corpse uncleanliness, which, by the way, was the most severe form of ritual impurity a Jew could, could do. Most severe form. And only people who had to deal with the body were, were, were uh, forgiven, if you will, or expected to have to deal with that. But Jesus did it. Interesting, isn't it? If you continue to read the story, if you and I touch the coffin, it makes us unclean. Jesus goes and touches the coffin, and it raises him to life. It's the opposite effect, right? But what I want you to see in verses 13 and 14 is that Jesus did not allow cultural and theological traditions to determine the nature of his relationship with a hurting person. Jesus had compassion on her. When he saw her, he suffered with her and said, don't weep. And to, and to emphasize and to make his point and to make compassion more than just empathy, to make compassion more than sympathy, he broke the rules. Jesus had a profound respect for tradition, but he never sinned. He would never let traditional Uh, traditional things obstruct his compassion toward her. It's interesting, if Jesus would have maintained cultural rules here, and if Jesus would have maintained the pharisaical regulations here, he wouldn't have stopped the funeral procession, he wouldn't have touched the coffin, we wouldn't have a dead person who is now alive to talk about, which means this devastated widow would have never, ever, ever experienced the compassion that everybody in the room felt, but Jesus could actually do something about. His compassion is active. So I want to park right there and talk about compassion. I want you to consider, I had three, now I, and then later this, in Sunday school this morning, two more came to mind, so I have five. Five points of application regarding Compassion. So the, the first thing I want you to, to see um, is, is that in as much as we talk about and understand that God is great, and he is great. Look, I mean, he raised this man from the dead. But, but motivating that is his goodness. Motivating that is his goodness. We were talking about this in Sunday school this morning. Why, why did, I mean, I'm going I'm to wipe the slate clean. I'm going to end thing. But I am also good, and I've made a promise and my heart is broken for the state of humanity, but I'm going to choose a family to save and continue the line of Adam. I'm going to fulfill my promise that someone's going to come and stomp on the serpent's head. So, so yes, God was punishing sin, right? Like there, was, there were complications, but he was still good, and so he acted with compassion toward humanity. Noah was not worthy, right? 
but God acted with compassion toward him. And so we, we talk a lot about the, the greatness of God, but, but here we see, yes, God is great. He isn't a great thing, but he does it because he's good. Um, page 98 of your book, Ortland says it this way. Actually, he's mostly quoting Jonathan Edwards. He says, we are drawn to God by the beauty of his heart. When sinners and sufferers come to Christ, the person that they find is exceedingly excellent and lovely. They come to one who is not only of excellent majesty and of perfect purity and of brightness, which is all what Jesus is, but also to one whom this majesty is conjoined with sweetest grace, which is what Jesus hears here in this passage. Jesus is exceedingly ready to receive them. He was exceedingly ready to receive this woman in her moment of need. I was um, in seminary, talking about the goodness and the greatness of God. I was, I was in seminary, and my third year of seminary, I mean, how learned could I possibly be at that point? I mean, I'm interpreting Greek like nobody's business. Like, how, how learned could I be? But apparently, I was also a, a not nice person. So I, my third year, I was waiting tables at a locally owned Greek restaurant called uh, the Connie Kanakis Cafe. Connie Kanakis, well, he, Connie, uh, was a Greek restaurateur uh, in the community, and he had several restaurants, and this one was his last one. And um, he was, he needed compassion. <laughs> he was not a nice man. Okay, I chose to work there because I had waited tables before uh, during graduate school year, and I worked in restaurants where you had to work really, really hard for a menu that wasn't expensive. And so maybe you'd make 80 to $120 a night, you know, waiting tables. Um, and, but you'd work 15 tables, you know, getting that. Whereas you'd go to Connie Kanakis, and I'd work three tables all night and make $100. I had to wear a tux. It was expensive. But, you know, you don't work hard to get the same money. So it was, it was, it was actually kind of good. So I'd been there several months. And uh, during the, at lunch, it was a meet and three. Like you'd show up, it was $12. You'd get, you know, a homemade, three homemade vegetables and a, and a chicken Salmon croquette or whatever you know how it is. I'm eating three, and uh, and then we got. Then at night we would we would have a formal a more, a more formal dinner, and it was run by his children. So um, oh gosh, I got to hurry, and uh, so it was, it was run run by his children. And so one of the one of his children was was her name was Melina, and she was no saint, um, but this was a, a a religious family in that they practiced Greek or, Greek Orthodoxy. They would they would go to church and their festivals and whatnot. And after being there for a few months, Melina, knowing that I was in divinity school, um, was having this conversation, and she was talking pretty brash and, and harsh about somebody or something. I don't even remember. But I do remember what she said, sitting at the bar between lunch and dinner shifts, drinking something. And she said, man, Rob, sometimes I wonder what you must think of me. Sometimes I wonder what you must think of me. And my answer was really only half right. And my behavior had only been, up to that point in waiting tables there, had only been half right. See, Melina knew enough about me to know that I had a different moral standard. She knew that I expect, she knew that, and I'm going to equate moral standard with greatness. But she didn't see enough in me to think that I might be kind or compassionate. She just assumed 
based on her experience with me and other Christians, that I would be more concerned about the greatness of God than the goodness of God. Do we understand just how compassionate and good Jesus is toward us? Do we know personally about Jesus' desire to draw near to us when we sin and when we suffer? And do we reflect that reality toward people? Are you willing to forsake tradition and, um, and, 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 well, I would just leave it at tradition, in order to enter into a relationship of compassion towards somebody that if you were found to be associated with them, some of the people might question why you're friends with them. That's, that was Jesus' whole life. That's number one. Number two, um, a tradition at the expense of compassion. Are we allowing traditions to prevent acts of compassion? If, if tradition and law had ruled in this moment in Luke 7, verse 13 would say, when the Lord saw her, but it doesn't say that. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion, and he bent the rules, and life came as a result. So the entire experience begs the question both personally and institutionally, do we, is there a way in which we allow traditions to prevent us from being compassionate? We can't do the compassion thing because then we'd have to, then we have to do something we don't ever have never done before. You know, would we rather adhere to what we know at the expense of suffering with those who need to know God? That's that's the question this text raised. Number three, stepping out with compassion. So you, it's awkward, isn't it? As an introvert, it was just it was kind of awkward at the time, like just learning how to do ministry in that moment. But it's awkward, period. Like when somebody else is suffering, what do you do? You know, like, what do you say? Um, and it's, you, you feel concern, but do we ever like step into that person's life and, and be, suffer with compassion, suffer with them through acts of service and words of, of love? Sometimes the most effective ministry is just the smallest act of compassion. It's not, you're not trying to fix the problem. That's my fault. That's, that's my burden. I'm an Enneagram 3. We don't, don't, don't send me hate mail about Enneagram, but I'm going to fix the problem. Okay? And so I look at the problem. I go, well, if I can't fix it, I'm not going to engage. Unbiblical. Jesus is going to fix it. I'm going to represent him to this person. That's compassion. That's compassion. Um, I, I mentioned the, the two funerals that I, that I performed. Um, the, the second one with the, the, the 19-year-old girl, is, it was uh, the daughter of a, of a mayor in Williamson County. There's you know, a thousand people at this thing. And um, because they had been church traveling, they didn't really have a pastor, but I had been her youth pastor before and her sister's youth pastor. And so they, they called me and talked to them in years, and they called me to do this funeral. And after I gave the, the message and after the service, mother after father after mother after father who had lost children the same way coming to me years after struggling to have Jesus as their living hope. It meant to me that um, 
that just for even, even though I had not had a relationship with these people in years, that the Lord had sovereignly in His providence and His care given me that moment and that word from that text to bring to bear, not just for the family that was there, but to enter into, whether well, I didn't realize I was doing it, but enter into the lives of other people who were struggling with the same thing. It was an act of compassion to take the word and bring it to bear on these people's lives, even though I didn't have all the context, right? So to step out into a very uncomfortable moment and bring the truth of the gospel to bear in people's lives. Yes, it's uncomfortable, but my goodness what the Lord does with that. It's incredible. And you got nothing to do with it, right? You were just a vessel. You were just the the vessel. Number four, compassion will cost you. Oh, it will cost you. If you have compassion on someone where tradition would say you keep your arm's length from that person, you keep your distance from that person, and maybe in that moment or just because of who they are and what they represent, it will cost you. The conservative, traditional people will say that you have compromised, or, and if you don't have compassion, you know, the, 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 the people on the other side will say, well, you're just, a, 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 you know, you're just some sort of hypocritical, uh, uncaring, legalistic person. Like, but when you enter into life, into compassion with somebody, it will cost you, whether it may cost you with your reputation with some, even if you're following Jesus, and it will, you will have to invest. Compassion requires investment. You can't suffer with somebody in a way that's convenient, in a way that doesn't blow up your phone, in a way that doesn't ruin your schedule. It doesn't happen. And then lastly, compassion is a gateway to new life. Compassion is a gateway to a new life, both for you as you act on it and those that you serve. That's what takes place in this moment, but it's also what takes place later out through the Gospel of Luke. So this, Jesus is doing all this, and it's not meeting expectations. John the Baptist is next in this narrative. And John the Baptist, has expe- he's in prison for it. And his expectation down and build a Jewish nation, and that's what's going to happen. And instead, Jesus is walking out in the backwater towns healing people, right? Um, and so what, what you have is, some, is it's costing Jesus a little bit, back to point three, but, it's, but it's, it's opening the gate, it's opening the door to who Jesus actually really is. His acts of compassion collectively are opening the door, opening the gate for people to understand what the gospel is really all about. And so Jesus actually says, they reach out to John the Baptist sends men. They reach out to him. And Jesus said, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. What have you seen and heard that proves who Jesus is? Number one, he blind are receiving their sight. The lame are walking. Those with leprosy are cleansed. The deaf are hearing. The dead are raised. And the poor are told the good news. What's that? That's compassion. That's a compassion ministry. So practicing compassion, bringing the gospel to bear on the lives of people that we interact with on a regular basis is a gateway to salvation for them. That's all I got. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your patience. Lord, thank you for this word. And I I hope that we understand that, first of all, the act of compassion that Jesus had toward us. He suffers with us as we've, we've hit on this off and on from time to time over the last five weeks. But what we see is that Jesus suffers with us. And therefore, what we see is a call to suffer with others. It will cost us something. It will cost us tradition. It will, it will, we will have to, to, we will find the spirit of the law more than the letter of the law. And, and, and we, it will be inconvenient. 
And yet it will, it will be a gateway to life for ourselves and for those that we bring the gospel to bear with. So help us be a church and a people of compassion. Help us to live as though we know and feel and sense and understand your compassion toward us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.